Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. It's Judgment Day. <laughs> well, not. Unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Well, yeah, maybe one day it will be. I but know. For sorry, now, I was a total just... cock tease, right? <laughs> no. We didn't watch Terminator, guys. Sorry, I'm really sorry. <laughs> we, we, watched, watched, we will. We will. <laughs> we watched Stallone's Judge Dredd. <laughs> I know. Like such a whammy, <laughs> such a whammy. 1995, still yeah. a big year, big year. Oh, big year for Rob Schneider, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Let's take uh, a quick listen to the trailer. Let's do it. When there is crime in society, there is no justice. As a city, we continue to grow. 73 citizen riots. Come and get on it! Turn on your weapons and prepare to be judged! Justice! Court's adjourned. You're under arrest. What's the charge? Murder. The evidence has been falsified! Guilty as charged. I am not the law! I am the law! Excuse me? We're not together. It's not for this council to play God! We got a lot in common. I'll be the judge of that. Gord's a jerk. Gord's a jerk. <laughs> we, okay, we kept being like, how does he do that with his For voice? For once does that voice? <laughs> like he, Gord's a jerk. I can only like kind of do it if I do it really quietly, like, <laughs> Projection, please. Yeah. Yeah. A lot going on in that trailer. So much. Holy shit balls. There were explosions and the, there was Stallone. Oh my God. This was like the quintessential too many cooks in the kitchen. Well, no, there was one cook and his name was Sylvester Stallone <laughs> and he fucking steamrolled everything because like this movie was originally supposed to be, you know, super sinister and kind of cynical mm -hmm. a la Robocop because like the comics that it's based off of are not, a, they're not funny. Yeah, well, They don't they, have fucking Rob Schneider's running around. No, they do not. <laughs> in the, in 2012, they did a remake of this, which was actually great, I yeah. thought. And it's much I more, seen that. it's yeah. so dark. It's portrayal of police state and a city that it has a population so much bigger than it could ever like be policed Handle, yeah it, it's handled very interestingly well Danny Cannon who's the director he like intended this like darker more satirical approach but of course Sylvester Stallone said he felt the film was supposed to be a comedy action film and demanded all these rewrites to make it even more comedic so what ended up on fucking screen is way different from the original script that makes a lot of sense because <laughs> he it, yeah it does feel like a movie whose script could have been really meaningful yeah. But was just a silly action. You have this. potentially Judge Dredd and Rob Schneider's character, Fergie, being like they're about to be executed. And Rob Schneider says, we're not together. It's yeah. like, that's not. <laughs> we didn't come here together, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah. So, yeah, because of all of these like constant creative clashes that, well, constant creative clashes with Danny Cannon. <laughs> wow. There were so many of them with Sylvester Stallone that Cannon vowed to like never work with a high profile actor again. Yeah, I, I can understand that reaction especially stallone fuck yeah well also because stallone considers himself a writer because he is one yeah because he wrote, he wrote rocky and yeah. he wrote, he's like written a lot of movies actually some of which are really good totally you know he considers himself a guy who has taste i just don't know how you if knowing anything about the original comics which i did a little dive on i'm like i don't know how anybody would leave that being like you know what this needs a little more slapstick mm. that is mm. a mistake yeah. so i wonder if he was going like demolition man was such a success totally because that was a the same year it was two years earlier two years earlier yeah. okay okay well another funny thing is like in the Dread comics, tradition dictates that he's never supposed to take his fucking helmet off. Right, you so, always see his jaw. Right, that's the whole but point. But they're like, Stallone's it's eyes. Stallone, his it's baby blues, his like really <laughs> creepy, off-putting blue contacts. His contacts don't look like any actual blue eyes in real world. <laughs> no, no, rarely do they. I mean, since then, I think, you know, contact technology has gotten more sophisticated. <laughs> more but back realistic. then, you were just like, oh, are you a vampire? I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay, another fun tidbit. So Armando Santi in this movie, holy guacamole, here's some context for why he's so ridiculous. So at first, the villain in this movie is supposed to be this guy called Judge Death, is this monster okay. who makes it illegal to live. Living is illegal. Oh, oh. 
but it was too expensive to create Death's skeleton body costume. <laughs> and so Rico, this character what? that had more to do with Judge Dredd's past, that's why they brought him in there. And Armando Santi actually played Rico with a Sylvester Stallone-like speech pattern to show how alike the two were. Oh, Does that not make God. so much sense with his crazy <laughs> accent? It's just being like, who politics is actually yeah, much he's more. Over the top intensity is actually matching Stallone. Stallone. He's like, it's like an acting choice because it's like, well, if my character is his brother, Right. Then I need to be on that level too. Right. That's amazing. Just stalloning his ass off. Why did you touch me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. Whoa. I betrayed this. Your council's experiment, which failed. Oh, I wanted to quickly mention that one of the writers who wrote for this movie wrote Die Hard. So no, it's, yeah. No. Yeah. And it's actually composed by Alan Silvestri, who composed the Back to the Future theme. Why? Yeah. Well, Alan Silvestri's done a lot of movies, and right. only a few of them good. are really, really Yeah, they're not all renowned. Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's it's got a lot of, like, good pedigree in this movie. <laughs> I can't, you know, the original cut of it was rated NC-17, and they had to recut it over and over again until it was PG-13. That's a lot of cutting. This real-life tidbit I find pretty funny. So according to Rob Schneider, Sylvester Stallone called him and offered him the role of Fergie after his first cho choice, Joe Pesci, turned it down. Joe Pesci was supposed to be that character? Yeah. Could you imagine how I... much less you'd want to punch that character in the face? Oh, well, certainly I'd be afraid to punch that character right. in the face. You'd be but... like, oh, I can actually take you seriously, but that's completely antithetical. Although, no, maybe he would play it like Home Alone style. Well, he would play it probably pretty ridiculous, but it's like... I believe that character is in that world in a sure. more realistic way than I believe yeah. like wisecracking Schneider is. You could Schneider be a fucking is. wise guy and be on The Sopranos. Right. Hello, right. the Polly Walnut style. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it could have been very different. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you recall the scene where they're in that like fiery exhaust shaft. That, whatever, they're in a fiery exhaust. Oh yeah, yeah, exhaust yeah. Where they gotta shaft. run through. It's like the thing from The Rock where it's like there's gonna yeah. be a flame that comes every totally. 30 seconds yeah. and they gotta run in in time. Exactly. So <laughs> in an interview, Rob, Schneider claimed that for that scene, the film crew gave Sylvester Stallone extra fire retardant on the back of his costume, while Mr. Schneider got no fire retardant at all. <laughs> You're fired, Schneider. Oh my God. Dude. <laughs> I mean, I can't blame them no. for making that choice. <laughs> Someone foresaw like Deuce Bigelow in the in the Yeah, they were like, oh, we're trying to stop this from happening. Yeah. The movie's based on this popular and long-running British comic book character who first appeared in the comic 2000 AD. This is from the perspective of a British writer, but the setting of Judge Dredd is a dystopian future Earth damaged by a series of international conflicts. Now, much of the planet has become radioactive wasteland, and so these populations have formed in enormous megacities. So within Megacity 1, extensive automation, including intelligent robots, has rendered the majority of the population unemployed. Mm. Mm. Now, as a consequence, the general population is prone to embracing any fashion or craze they encounter. Hmm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, so the, the population... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, hello. Well, the population lives in these gigantic towers known as city blocks, and each of the city blocks is named after some historical person or TV character, usually for comic effect. For example, Joe, who's Judge Dredd, he used to live in the Rowdy Yates block. Now, Rowdy Yates was a character in the American TV cowboy drama Rawhide, played by young Clint Eastwood. Oh. Didn't know that. That's but, interesting. Yeah, so again... From the perspective of a British person, there are four other major population centers in Dred's Northern America. There's Texas City, which includes several of the southern former United States. This is, of course, based on the Wild West. South of the city is Mex City. Uh, Mexico. We, uh, <laughs> Far north is Uranium City. Okay. And then Mega City 2 once existed on the West Coast, but was destroyed in 2114 during the World War known as Judgment Day. And oh, I was like, there was a judgment day. And that took place in L.A. I'm wondering <laughs> if there's crossover. Just kidding. But otherwise, there's just nuclear deserts and destruction elsewhere in the world. And, you know, much of the North Atlantic is severely polluted and is now known as the Black Atlantic. And then oh. there's this underwater settlement known as Atlantis, which is halfway along a tunnel from Mega City 1 to Britsit. Which is England. <laughs> anyway, so I just loved the just the imagining of this world, right? Mm -hmm. Of it's like it all kind of makes sense. It's this dystopian future. Everything's polluted. You 
know, more or less like how it is today. Yeah. I mean, you're going to, you know, taking it to a satirical extreme. Mm -hmm. It sounds like I would really like this comic. Yeah, totally. Which is why it's such a fucking nightmare that this movie (laughs) missed out. So because even in the comics, Fergie, who's Rob Schneider's character, he's like this fugitive who lives in the Undercity, which is the remains of the original eastern seaboard cities Mm -hmm. that were then like covered up with concrete. Megacity was built on top. Megacity one, rather. And he was like supposed to be the top dog of the other outcasts and mutants. But, you know, of course, in the movie, they just played him like a total fuck face that yeah, you just want to kill. Know, a little puss who just got out of jail. <laughs> I don't know what I, I don't know what do you call him. Rob Schneider's a puss. Uh, but <laughs> you did say at one point, like, I don't use this term lightly, but he is a fucking pussy. Yeah, so true. <laughs> I don't use it lightly, and he is a pussy. <laughs> So with all that megacity stuff, I looked into like what is the definition of a megacity and it's defined as a metropolitan area with a total population over 10 million people. Okay. And in 1800, only 3% of the world's population lived in cities. But by the end of the 20th century, it was 47% of the world's population. Right, right. So in 1950, there were 83 cities with populations over 1 million. Mm -hmm. By 2007, there were 468. Jesus Christ. You said from the 80s? From the 50s. From the 50s, my bad. That's still not that long to go... To go from 83 to 468? Yeah. Yeah, in like 57 years. Fuck. That's a really short period of time. Right. Right now, there are 39 megacities in the world. Okay. The largest one being Tokyo, which has about 39 million people Fucking in it. Fucking hell, man. Yeah. Do you remember how many people were supposed to be... I don't know about this movie, but in Soylent Green, it was supposed to be 40 million people in New York. Okay, okay. And right okay. now there's 39 million people in Tokyo. Yeah, so the UN forecasts that today's urban population is about 3.2 billion people, and it's going to rise to over 5 billion people by 2030. So just over 10 years from now, it'll be like more than 2 billion people will be living in what they classify as slums or slanty towns. Right. Shanty towns. Sorry. <laughs> hey, you're getting I, the, I actually, <laughs> Later on, there's a thing called the slanty streets in okay. my notes, so... <laughs> Dude, the slanty towns <laughs> and the shanty streets. Yeah. The sh- all right. <laughs> but wow. yeah, more of those numbers that are just terrifying that 13 years from now, we're going to be significantly more overpopulated and three out of every five people will be living in cities. I wonder how much that's going to potentially change, especially with like, okay, this is go with me on this. Cause mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I'm like, well, before it sort of, it really made sense that people would be densely populated in certain right. cities. If there's like certain industries or for commercial reasons, but then like with the internet and stuff of like people not having to be in LA or New York, for example, you could do things anywhere. I wonder if that will maybe like ease. I mean, the population is going to, keep growing probably but I mean so that it doesn't become these crazy mega cities where you have to build you know you have to build up because I'm even just thinking in America there's so much unused land and I'm not necessarily suggesting just pave all the you know yeah put up several parking lots but I what do you think well I don't know because there's more jobs in a big city Mm -hmm. than there would be in a rural place where most of it's automated in farmland Mm -hmm. like 200 years ago most of the jobs in America were farm jobs right and now it's less than like one but that's kind of why I made the point of the the new industry. Well, people have to get on board with the new industries, but like right. solar, wind, all of these things, like they're going to require workers to like build and, and learn the new skills for yeah. or whatever. So it's like with the changing landscape of the economy and shit too, that I'm wondering how we can yeah, deal with know, that because it's like, what are we going to do? It's already fucking expensive to live here. Is right. San Francisco more expensive <laughs> know, San than San New York? I can't. Like that's too much. Terribly expensive. Yeah. Right <laughs> I, th- I think it's mostly driven by there are people who mm-hmm. need to be serviced mm-hmm. a- in those cities. And so like I can get a service job. Whereas like if there aren't as many people around, what are you going to do for a job? That's sort of why I was talking about like yeah. the the internet because like the mobility, the communication, then like not having to be physically in yeah. a place to be able to offer these services, whatever they are. You know what I mean? Like consult, like point. how many people work from fucking home or they work remotely and these kinds yeah. of things. Now, of course, I'm not saying that that's going to change the same way for everybody across the board. But, you know, at some point, it's going to become untenable. Like, yeah. Well, I wonder too. Like, do people prefer living in big cities overall? I know, like, it's individual, but is there something to being in a larger society I think it depends on how how well it's managed because it's some you know like there's times when I get really frustrated even living in LA but then I'm like yeah but 
you know, we California's got good laws. Like right, overall, I'm right. taking care of maybe better than I would be in another state that's mm-hmm. more rural and doesn't have as much money. Basically, that's that's ultimately what it is. Is how wealthy the right. the city is because there's a lot of overpopulated cities that don't have the fucking money to sustain their folks. Well, I know, like for example, and this is like from about five or six years ago. I remember reading about the crazy migration in China to the major cities, and mm-hmm. this was because like Foxconn, for example, the company that builds the iPhone, mm-hmm. in seasons they would offer hundreds of thousands of jobs to people to assemble the iPhone and people were just pouring in who didn't have any jobs in the farming were barely scraping by rurally Mm -hmm. and then they would send sometimes like a member of their family or multiple members of their family to go into the city live there and make money right because there's a market for it right I mean and I totally get that point and that's what I'm saying is like that's been up until relatively recently the status quo but I mean really within our lifetimes is the internet a thing you know well, and so i'm just like wondering how that's going to become assembly line jobs right and so those jobs are going to go away and then what are all these people going to do who have moved to the city universal basic income guys well, <laughs> that's, where, that's where it's like what you're describing i was thinking that earlier where it's like i almost feel like in order for that utopia to exist where we can just like go and live more evenly throughout mm-hmm. the the world is requiring like this universal basic income yeah. universal basic housing it's such a hard fucking problem what we really need to do is not have so many people (laughs) yeah guys stop popping out three or four kids at a time yeah and in this movie they actually do kind of make this reference to like we should lower how bad the crime would be for execution partly because of population control where it's like let's start executing people for more and more minor crimes Mm -hmm. what do you think about that as an idea to execute people for minor crimes? More and more minor crimes, like starting with murder and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then you start creeping downward, okay. partly as like a population control technique. No. Also at the same time trying to get rid of the worst of society. It's a terrible idea, it's I It's a terrible think, idea, but... yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I have so many fucking issues with capital punishment in general and just yeah. like what that, like what justice ultimately is in that case. And like, that's not even including the the fact of how many people have been wrongfully accused or on death row yeah. for like 30 years before they're acquitted know, and all this stuff. So let alone the fact that it's like, I mean, we lock people up for the most outrageous offenses yeah. for the rest of their fucking life. I can't say that it's like better to kill people, but it's also like, or lock them up their whole life. Like either way, right. we're doing it wrong right now, yeah. you know? So I well, mean- I guess, but My question is like, and I really, I really don't know the answer here is- if we are in a situation where it's just there's too many people here and we actually have to do some kind of culling or purge, or, yeah. I guess. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm realizing like if you were to do that, I guess you would start by executing more people for lesser crimes. It's about what you determined to because you know you think of something like the purge and that's just straight up anarchy that's people taking the law into their own hand the law quote unquote Mm. but and then versus then giving that power to this fucking police force yeah and you know so there's something about about that nuance between like governments being responsible for the killing and then people doing it on a fundamental level like how can you get i mean fuck i can't even get my mind in the place that it's like we're gonna have to kill people there's just too many of us i know i can't too many lost resources like this movie bringing up that concept freaked me out because like i can't go to that place and i'm against the death penalty for so many reasons but then it's like i don't know man if we get 50 billion people on this world like what do you do about that right right well and then what's fucking crazy is then you have these like epidemics that happen like the opioid epidemic right we are just killing ourselves off not fast enough right <laughs> but let's get back into cities for a minute yeah <laughs> so with all the mega city stuff i looked into some city planning stuff uh-huh. too and i found a couple of crazy examples first of all missoula montana there were two competing street grid systems being built at the same time mm-hmm. and they couldn't agree on which direction the grid should go in oh my so there's a part of the town called the slanty streets okay and that's where suddenly all the streets go to a 45 degree angle and they just like clashed into each other oh shit and it's like a really confusing piece of city planning i feel like that's what happened to like lower manhattan or like some parts in manhattan i know that's where it started well actually wall street used to be a wall and and anything south of wall street is all a jumbled mess because it was just like they started building roads but anything north of wall street is a perfect grid because they actually planned the rest of the city totally oh gotcha okay so it was like the reverse of that and Mm -hmm. then i think of even fucking la they did not know how big they were gonna get we're just sprawling all over the place just like streets that turn into other streets and then back into the other original street it's It's like it's not as bad as Boston. Oh which yeah, I've is never a been. Mess. I, heard it's I grew a shit up in that show. area. It's just like people just were like, "Oh, I, I want to go there," and they just like started a trail. 
<laughs> and now like those trails are all like one-way streets Whoa, now and you don't oh, understand how anything the works. The constant one-ways is a Oh, it's the worst. Oof, ah, oof. But so listen to this city. In 1945, the Soviet Union discovered oil off of the coast of Azerbaijan, and they built the first offshore oil rig. It was this massive multi-platform rig in the middle of the ocean. But then they discovered that there was even more oil really close by. And instead of building a whole new platform, they bolted an old boat onto the existing platform and started doing the oil off of that boat. And then they continued doing this over and over again until they wound up with a gigantic city called Oily Rocks. What? With over 120 miles of road built into the middle of the Caspian Sea. Holy shit. And this was in the 40s? This is in, yeah, but it's still there. Oh my God. 5,000 people still work on this like (laughs) city in the middle of the ocean. Holy shit, I've never heard of this. I know. It's got a library, apartment buildings, hostels, and bakeries, and everything. I it's would like, fucking go in a hostel in the middle of the sea. <laughs> I know. It looks like docks that just go on forever, but they're in the middle of the ocean. They're just like, let's tack this on. That's just like the Winchester mystery, mystery House. house. Mystery yeah, dock. kind of like that. Like the way she just kept building onto the house, but it was like an oil rig. That's cool. So in this movie... They have a clone program. Oh, yeah. And they call the clone program Project Janus. <sighs> and I didn't know who Janus was or where that name comes from. And it turns out that, first of all, it's thought that the month January comes from Janus. Of course, because it's spelled J-A-N-U-S. Mm-hmm. Not, I thought it was Janus, but no. <laughs> like Joplin? Yeah, totes. <laughs> so Janus was a... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a Roman god of beginnings, transitions, duality, doorways, and endings. Oh, beginnings and ends? Yeah. All Basically, right. he presided over the beginning and ending of conflict, like war and peace. And he had two faces, one looking to the future, the other one looking to the past. Okay. And the doors of his temple would be open in a time of war and closed to mark peace. Interesting. And there was actually no Greek equivalent to Janus. Like most Roman gods, there were Greek equivalents of. Uh-huh, right, right. But this one was specifically Roman. And Hercules yeah. was Apollo? I know yeah. that Zeus and Jupiter. Right, yeah. They're are a the thing, same. right. Yeah. Athena and Diana. Yeah, <laughs> it's so hard to remember. I went to them the Getty Villa not long ago and I made all these connections. It was like, oh my God, yeah. they cross over. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. So he wasn't necessarily, I guess I assumed that he would be like some kind of judge character. No, he's, I mean, not. he's really the beginning and ending character. Okay. Like be- new beginnings. Totally. There is a war element to it. Sure. But I don't know. I felt like it was kind of muddy for what the movie was trying right. to say about like the clone. Yeah. But then I think about like the the poster or something. And it's probably like Stallone looking one direction and Rico looking the other direction. Right. And it's okay. like, that's what Janus looks like. Yeah, it's face off. Janus is okay. big face off. Gotcha. All right. That's what's so crazy is like we decided to do this movie because I felt like I had more things to say about clones. Yeah. And then I like very quickly forgot that this movie was about clones because yeah. I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> I was asking you in the sixth day episode about like raising yourself. Yeah. And you told me that you wanted to say a little more on that subject. Well, because you know, at the time it was such a like new and novel concept and I'm uh-huh. really just like enraptured by the idea of being like watching little Joya grow <laughs> yeah, through yeah, her yeah. fucking awkward phase. I was thinking about it more just in terms of like if literally exactly the person I am now was being raised right, by me. Right, right, right. What I failed to really like own up to is my fucking generation. Right. Everything about me is a 90s kid. Like right. all of my sense of humor was formed by the Simpsons. You know, mm-hmm. I dress like Clarissa explains it all. Yeah. And that's not to say that like you couldn't show your kid the Simpsons or whatever. Well, yeah, you grew up like when computers were entering the home. Right. Like, it, and the internet was first coming online. Right. And if you were to raise a you that grew up with a, an iPhone in their hand when they were you, two years you old. You can't fake that. Unless you're trying to keep your kid away from all of that, there's right. no way that she would have the same sensibility that I do be- based on my experience. And, and so, your parents are very different than you are. Totally. And so, oh my God, thank yeah. you for saying that. Like, I wholeheartedly did not it, like yeah. include how... Like how different the nurture would be, like, even if the nature is the same. You guys don't know. 
but I have some colorful character parents. Like I was raised by a literal old man who was like a stereotypical Italian guy, but like not actually Italian, like American Italian, like refers to himself as Tony Soprano when he goes out to, be to why dinner. You're always, oh man! Yeah, that's why I'm snapping. You can hear me snapping. I'm literally <laughs> well, finger gunning right why now. You're always trying to keep your old man in check. Exactly, <laughs> because I was raised by a man that's just like, hey, yeah, but the do. But I mean, the that's women basically get in the talking. kitchen. Right, and well, all that kind of stuff. He was he was okay because you know eventually uh-huh. I was like, Dad, you're just gonna have to deal with it, okay? It's <laughs> it's the new millennium. Well, he managed to raise a kid who went to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, so, totally. You know. And you know, he didn't know he didn't go to college. He didn't know anything. Well, yeah, he little did he know that I was gonna turn into this like staunch feminist. Right. <laughs> and that's not to say that again that you couldn't still have similar experiences, but I just really missed the mark in terms of like how unique each of our lives is. And yeah. Yeah. I would be interesting to see what a Joya would be like without a traumatic childhood. Right, right. <laughs> and like crazy situ- and also like, you know, my brother is is hugely important in terms of my development as a person. Mm-hmm. So that's all I wanted to say is like Yeah, that's a good point of like if you were to raise a clone of yourself, would you also raise a clone of your sibling? Totally. Before that? I, I wore all, all of my brother's clothes up until a certain point. You know what I mean? Nurture makes a big difference. Nineties <sighs> kid forever. <laughs> The climax of this movie happens in the head of the Statue of Liberty. And <laughs> That's right. For like they no make reason. themselves to the top. Of the- we were like, I guess we're in the Statue of Liberty yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where they have the clone program. Right, It's right. inside the crown. But it's a little too meta. They, they did have like just one line earlier where he was like, oh, yeah, when they moved the Statue of Liberty. Whatever. They moved it. They moved it. So, first of all, the Statue of Liberty is made out of copper. And the reason it's green is because of rust. Mm-hmm. Which, like, you know, that's one of those facts that maybe a lot of people do I know. But it was but always green. No, it was originally copper color. Oh, and thinking shit. about, like, the whole thing in a copper color is just nuts to no, me. No, can't do it. Yeah. Don't want to. <laughs> Don't even want to. <laughs> even crazier was how it was shipped from France to here, piece by piece. Because it was in 350 individual pieces packed into more than 200 cases. And it was supposed to be finished by the 100th anniversary of America's Declaration of Independence. Uh But fundraising efforts, which included auctions, a lottery, and boxing matches... Oh, my. ...took longer than they thought in both Europe and the U.S. And the statue wound up costing France about $5.5 million in today's money. (sighs) I guess we paid for the pedestal. Okay. Yeah, it's not, like, insane money, but it's still, like, what an undertaking to do. Yeah. What, what, like, could you imagine that happening today where a country, like, makes a gift like that for another country? I feel like we're beyond that. That shit would never happen. I mean, like, there's, like, presidents go to another country and, like, give the Pope a thing. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't couldn't imagine another country doing that to us, but I'm like, I sure as fuck couldn't imagine us Us doing that for another country. country. Yeah. So it finally arrived in New York Harbor in 1885, and we set out to reassemble the 450,000-pound statue. Mm-hmm. We should post some pictures of the statue as it's arrived, because just seeing like the head on its side like, yeah, it's alone is such a crazy <laughs> image. <laughs> like, like kind of like in Planet of the Apes when they're just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, damn you! <laughs> damn you all to hell! <laughs> But the reason the torch has been off limits to visitors since 1916 is that a couple of miles away from the statue, there was a World War I sabotage by German agents to destroy American-made munitions, which were like cars full of dynamite, that were supposed to be supplied to the Allies in World War I. And this caused an explosion so huge, it was called the Black Tom Explosion. What? It ejected material so far, it slammed into the Statue of Liberty, damaging the torch and her skirt. Mm -hmm. apparently the explosion was so big it blew out windows in new york and people in maryland woke up thinking there was an earthquake it registered 5.5 on the richter scale oh man and ever since people have only been able to go up to the crown rather than up to the torch because they never like properly fixed the tiny stairway up the arm up to the torch I didn't know any of that. I know. I, didn't, I, like, I was like, what's the, like, it was like, well, after the Black Tom explosion, the torch was closed. I was like, you what guys know the what that Black is. Tom explosion? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck was that? And then like, uh, yeah, there, it was before we entered World War One, And dude. it like, they actually thought it was like these lazy dudes who had like lit these pots in order to get like mosquitoes away. Oh man. And so they like originally arrested a couple of people for supposedly accidentally causing this explosion. And then they later found out it was German agents. What? Yeah. That is crazy. 
Wow, Lady Liberty's been through some shit, man. Holy smokes, guys. Okay, there's a puzzle box in this movie. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. He, there's like, <laughs> was it the one with the fingerprint sensor? There was like some old timey, uh, yeah. you know, like. Yeah, it was a puzzle da Vinci box. Cody box. It was supposed to look like high tech gizmo or whatever. But then I was like, what's up with puzzles? <laughs> so <laughs> I did a dive on puzzles. Okay. Oh, I'm really excited. Oh, about man. This. It's great. Oh, and then we're going to get to like why we like puzzles, guys. Strap well, in, yeah, get ready about, to go. Like, is a maze fun? Yeah. That's like a, something I've been thinking about lately. I don't think it's fun, but I think it fulfills something perhaps <laughs> yeah. deeper than that. Yes. Let's start with our little history timeline, shall we? Let's blast all the way back to <laughs> 2300 BC. Now, this is before modern puzzles, of course, but there were labyrinth drawings that were popular in the world, particularly in ancient Greece and Egypt. So one of the most famous labyrinths was the ancient Cretan labyrinth, which was supposedly built by King Minos of Greece for his minotaur to hang out at the center. That's oh, the half is... man, half bull guy. Yeah, I've heard about the legend of like, you're locked in a labyrinth and there's yeah. a minotaur around. Just hanging out at the center. The corner. Hey. I don't know, there's probably some right. riddles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not quite sphinx, <laughs> but... So, of course, the labyrinth did exist, but the minotaur is just but a myth. <laughs> Now, some 500 years after the first labyrinth drawings came the first tactile puzzle. Now, that's specifically with regards to touch. Like 500 and, piece? Yeah. No, it wasn't. No. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> now, this appeared in one of the first known human civilizations in the Indus Valley in Mohenjo-Daro. I don't know. It's an archaeological site in India-Pakistan area. And this is similar to the famous pigs and clover puzzle, which where the pigs were marbles and the solver was required to like manipulate them through these like hallways on concentric oh. circles like carved out of wood or I don't know if it's probably stone at like that I've time. I have seen that kind of puzzle as like a plastic kid's toy. Totally. With like uh, a, a ball bearing inside or something. Yes, exactly. Where you kind of have to move your hand ever so slightly to, yeah, to get the yeah. ball to slide so then the first dissection puzzle which is what we think of like actual pieces right this is in 395 ad this is i don't know how you say this if it's stomachian or stomachian stomachian Stomachian. <laughs> so this is a 14-piece dissection puzzle. This is also referred to as the loculus of Archimedes. And this is basically just a bunch of shapes. There's like triangles or different shapes that can be fit together in a square. We see puzzles like this all the time. Jumping forward a lot, because of course there's a lot of history of puzzles, right? Well, also um, like, yeah, it was the dark ages. Yeah. They weren't, they didn't have time for puzzles. Exactly. They had bigger fish to fry, <laughs> like dying before age 30. Hopefully not. So and then in 1400, there were these like puzzle vessels or puzzle jugs. So this is like thought of as one of the oldest mechanics. What are you going to joke about? No, I, just, okay. I just like the puzzle ooh, jugs. Ooh, yeah, hey, like, puzzle jugs. She yeah, got, oh, hey, she got oh, great boy. puzzle jugs. <laughs> anyway, so this is thought of as one of the oldest mechanical puzzles. And these vessels have these like series of holes that leak if you drink it normally. I'll show, we'll have all of these pictures of these things. Okay. You'll be able to see all this because I know I'm just describing it. But the trick is apparently to find like the tube which runs into the jug, cover the holes that run across it, and then suck the contents out like a straw. Otherwise, you can't suck it. You got to cover the holes. What? <laughs> That's the uh, saying as old as time. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I like. Well, I like that it's just like like a hand buzzer. Yeah. It's like a like a prank you pull oh, on yeah. a friend like, of like. like Please like, meet you. <laughs> yeah. Smell yeah. my flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a stick of gum and it snaps you. Yeah, totally. I'd found earlier examples that were found in like Cyprus and China and stuff that like these pots that didn't have any lid that they filled from the bottom and then you pour it. It's like they don't leak if you. How does it work? Where. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> like I didn't, the physics of the, uh, yeah. the water displacement and stuff? Well, you flip the thing over, you pour the water in through the bottom. So okay. I imagine it's just a tube that goes into the top, and then when you turn it back over, like the water is already in a different container. I'm sure oh, there's some okay. sort of in, inner mechanism that makes it smarter. I'm just <laughs> yeah. more fascinated by like the mentality that goes into yeah, this. Of like, of we like, want it to be a game. <laughs> you, you pour water every day. Yeah. Why not make it fun? <laughs> so in 1500, there's Cardan's Chinese rings. This was made by Geronimo Cardan. This is the earliest known disentanglement puzzle. This is where there was like a loop that has to be disentangled from a sequence of rings on interleaked pillars. This toy was toy was commonly referred to as the baguenardière, which is from the French verb, which means wasting your own time. Oh, that's Hey-o, great. Cute. I, that's yeah. Really fun. <laughs> <laughs> then there were these burr puzzles, which is one of the world's most popular puzzle games. The the origin, of course, is unknown, but it appears on record as early as 1698. It looks sort of like the puzzle box from Hellraiser, but not quite. Like, it's just a bunch okay. of pieces of wood that you, like, link together. Oh, yeah. I Let me see if I have... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
God, there's so Devil's many Hope. video games that nowadays have you like, here's an ancient puzzle. Totally. And you've got to like turn the knobs so that they all fit together and just the right, cast the shadow. Yeah. And, yeah. Then there's there's like the Spanish puzzle knives. They'd have these knives that you could open with combinations, which is pretty fucking cool. That is, like it was like a switchblade, but yeah, yeah. with a safety mechanism. Exactly. I, I imagine this is kind of also early Swiss Army knife style, right? They're like, got a toothpick randomly. Like I've always wanted to be able to do that thing. Like they call it a butterfly knife, I think, where you like I had then all to of a sudden... do that for a role in a movie. Really? Jaels, I did it. I had to do that for a, a scene in Je- a, a very dear friend of ours movie in college. I was like, that's so great. So I practiced for a while, and it's not even that hard, but it looks way cooler than it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, 1760, big year. That's when the jigsaw puzzle was created. Oh wow! This was like initially for the upper crust of European society, and it was just these European map makers that would like you know cut up pieces of maps and then you'd like put them together again simple right i mean if you're like a cartographer that sounds like a fun game totally i mean the idea being like but this is meant for the upper cross it's like you're fucking pieces of paper putting them together yeah now also they're like well because the pieces of paper have maps (laughs) right you must be very learned a high level brian brain brian (laughs) mind yo you're so high brian Let's move forward, shall we? 1790, sliding puzzles and dissection puzzles. We see these like all the time, right? So it's like the game of jags and hooks, which is similar to other pentomino style puzzles. Let's break this down. What does pentomino mean? I don't know. It's a five omino. It's a polyomino of order five. Oh, a pent. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so a domino is, is two. two. Think of Tetris, guys, just to give you a visualization. Tetris uh-huh. is is a polyomino, but that's a tetromino because there's four little squares that are attached to each other. And then, you know, you know the shapes okay. that I'm talking about. Yeah, Here we yeah. go. Because they're always four blocks in, yeah. Yeah. in Tetris. And you can like form them in different ways. But because I was like, what's a three omino and mm. it's triomino triomino i was Tri-onimo. like i was like yeah. i was really hoping it, hoping that it was tremino because i want to be like tremino <laughs> <laughs> anyway okay so like you know tetris style shit starts coming into play 1790 then like you know there's japanese puzzle boxes that are made of beautiful pieces of wood and that's also an art form so i really like this kind of like crossover of art and then also just trying to keep our little brains busy right mm-hmm. then are you familiar with this there's the Tower of Hanoi, and this was designed by a French mathematician specializing in the theory of numbers. It's this like toy that has three pegs and then a number of discs increasing in size. And the okay. problem is that you can't put a smaller disc underneath a large one, so you kind of have to like move move the discs in between the pegs to try to get it as like a pyramid. Oh, style. okay. I feel like stuff like that is in like pediatricians' waiting room. Totally. You know, totally. Those kinds of things that like your kids needs a minute right well and this whole time I was thinking I was like when are they going to talk about that little box with the shapes and the kids put the shapes through the box yeah I was going to say these are kind of like variations on like preschool teaching like what shapes and colors are and pattern finding which is this is eventually what we're going to get to in terms of like human consciousness and shit right so okay let's let's move a little bit forward the soma cube is this like solid dissection puzzle this is the thing that looks very much like the hellraiser cube because it's like an actual cube you still have the you know the seven pieces that are made out of unit cubes the like jag and hook tetris style things Mm. but they basically are assembled into a three by three cube and that you can make different shapes with them and everything too is this this is the fame this is the step behind the rubik's cube which was invented in 1974 so that's the first like 3d combination puzzle we all know what fucking rubik's cubes are i certainly hope so (laughs) but yeah like and this this, it's created this culture of cubers that you know time themselves against the clock and my sister-in-law can do them in like a minute and a half or less it's like like from any state there's like a certain like combination of rubik's cube movement that like you can do it with your eyes closed yeah. and you finish the puzzle. And Which, I, I can't do it with my eyes open. It, it really blows me away, although it is, it's probably one of those things once you've established that pattern. I think it's like, yeah, you see the matrix on it and then you know. Whereas I was... I was like, fuck that. When I was a kid, I took my little screwdriver. I unscrewed that yeah, motherfucking thing, disassembled t- it, and put it back together. Ripped the stickers off, put them back on the other sides. <laughs> no, I at least broke it up, and I, you know, I engineered the thing. Good I basically built it and disassembled it. I just it. colored. I used a fucking crayon. Just it out. <laughs> okay. This is where it gets a little heady, guys, but I think it's really fucking interesting because I was like, why do we fucking like puzzles? Like, why do I don't have fun when I play Sudoku, but I like playing Sudoku. Mm-hmm. Here we go. 
So I read this interesting piece with this neuroscientist named Daniel Bohr. He's a research fellow at the University of Sussex in England. And he's also the author of The Ravenous Brain, How the New Science of Consciousness Explains Our Insatiable Search for Meaning. Mm. Existential City, USA, am I right? <laughs> so he, he, Population, you and me. <laughs> yeah, you and me right now. <laughs> and all of you guys too. So again, he did this Q&A for a piece in Time magazine. And the overarching reason why is because we take great pleasure in pattern finding. Mm -hmm. Now... This might seem very simple, but this actually has really big implications for understanding the brain, consciousness, and even like neurological disorders like autism. Understand, I'm not trying to be a neuroscientist. I digested what this guy said, <laughs> but it was interesting to put it in context because it all seems kind of intuitive once you get what he's talking about. Right? Well, I mean, so many of the things that we've talked about come down to pattern recognition and our like innate need to see patterns and love yeah. of recognizing them. Totally. We were talking about that with Honey, I Shrink the Kids. Do you yeah, remember why? Yeah, Dan was, t was saying that it's like human being's superpower is pattern recognition and like totally the, you know it, it really is true whether it comes to knowing when a tiger is in the bushes mm -hmm. or i know that this pattern will lead to love i don't yeah. know like, there's so many, <laughs> like this algorithm equals <laughs> yeah exactly okay why are we so special in this way well apparently human brains have an extreme form of consciousness so they're ravenous for new solutions to problems for building pyramids of knowledge now where somebody like evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins might say that it's all about the selfish gene and that organisms are merely temporary carriers of genes. This guy Bohr argues that genes capture something about the world that's accurate and relevant to their own survival. Mm. This does not necessarily mean that all organisms are conscious, but it does mean that by this stage, four billion years after life first arose, most creatures are sophisticated information processing devices. Mm. Now, when you get to great apes and humans, we have an extreme form of information processing, which is linked to consciousness and gets, you know, very sophisticated and extensive mm -hmm. so really when we talk about consciousness you could just say it's a higher level of just like understanding, understanding info, patterns of just like being a computer <laughs> now in terms of the mind consciousness is the product of attention so you know we only focus on a small subset of the world that's most important to us attention can actually be broken down into to two different categories so there's voluntary where we set some goal like i'm gonna learn to play guitar and then there's extrinsic attention which is something in the environment that takes over what we attend to like you're saying if a fucking tiger is looming towards you mm -hmm. you don't really have any choice over them in the matter of whether or not you're going to pay attention to that so when we talk about consciousness it's not necessarily about these extrinsic or like the automatic habits is really rather about trying to solve complex problems like mm -hmm. we have a mental space dedicated to complex problem solving that's unique we have this like appetite to learn lessons yeah like other animals aren't necessarily like, I need to take a class, you well, know? it makes a lot of sense to me that, like, we feel rewarded for recognizing a pattern. I mean, it's the it's the reason for civilization in general. It's yeah, the reason yeah. we have time. It's, you know, it's like yeah. we're basing this off of the patterns of when the sun goes mm -hmm, up, when the sun mm -hmm. goes down, the moon, go, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's it's all patterns. And so, of course, that's going to boil down to even when we're just bored and, like, mm -hmm. you're playing fucking Fruit Ninja and you get points for when, you know, we've yeah. also built in a lot of the reward system of, of games. Of, right. Yeah. But I think that's still there regardless. It's just then there's also that like dopamine of being like, I'm being rewarded. Right. I'm, I'm worth something. Well, that's why like a lot of the modern apps with like <laughs> yeah. their microtransactions totally. are basically modern slot machines it's because it's ridiculous. like it's hitting that, yeah, dopamine thing in your brain. Which I, yeah. goes back to this pattern recognition thing, but it's now being used to like get an extra dollar out of you. South Park really addressed that in the freemium isn't free episode. They did a great episode <laughs> about that. I forgot about that. And it was exactly that. Yeah. Where, you know, you fucking nickel and dime these people, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Back to consciousness, guys. Yes. So we talked about what that means like in the mind and, you know, just if you're talking about like the philosophy of consciousness, I suppose. In the terms of the brain, though, consciousness is generated primarily by our most densely connected brain regions and related to the fastest brain waves. So every moment of our waking lives, there's like this hidden war going on between different populations of neurons in our brain. This war involves winning the support of active neurons and taking over the advanced parts of the cortex. So whatever brain wave is audacious enough to win, I guess, <laughs> they control what we attend to. And that is what we are conscious of. The way that they know this is because like there's different experiments that are done giving varying doses of anesthetics and seeing at what point like you stop following commands, at what point your eyes start to close, mm. that sort of thing. So then you can like look at brain waves on a scan and you know when they take on a certain pattern, you can basically determine that they're not 
conscious. I know that this is heady, but it's so fucking interesting. Stay with me. Are you with me? Oh, I'm with you. <laughs> there are some people who have had like brain injuries that enter a vegetative state and they don't recover, whereas others eventually make a reasonable recovery. Now, mm-hmm. enough research has been done in terms of what's going on in the brain that it's become increasingly clear that in order to be able to regain reasonable levels of consciousness, you need at least the thalamus, which is like a relay center in the middle of the brain, mm-hmm. and you need a reasonably intact prefrontal cortex and the back part of the parietal 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 oh that sounds so much better and the back of the parietal lobe so we don't know exactly like what mechanisms turns consciousness off but does look like at that point the prefrontal cortex gets like locked into this weird rhythm with the thalamus and that you know that connection blocks out all communication with the rest of the brain and then eventually consciousness as well so Hmm. yes we can talk about what we mean by consciousness in terms of like you know i'm a very conscious individual Mm -hmm. but then also our brains are electricity, so it's it's cool to at least know like the, the science thing, about that. The thing I love about that is that the doctors who are doing that are serving their pattern recognition brains totally. by recognizing the pattern of our pattern recognition 100%. brains. One hundred percent. Like you, know? you can't you can't escape it. It's like the only <laughs> way that we're able to understand the world. Yeah, just thinking about like my favorite video games are these complicated puzzle games. You mm-hmm. know, like they're called point and click adventures, and they're kind of coming back in style. And it's like. A lot of people hate them because they're frustrated. But what I find so satisfying about them is like, yeah, the toilet paper combines with the glue to make paper mache. Totally. Of course. Well, I mean, it's it's also that process of going through it from originally not understanding something and being really frustrated by it, and then there, yeah, there's something so satisfactory about when you when it clicks. I solved it. Yeah, it's like I I hated math, but like when I got it, I was like, I'm gonna do algebra all day long. This is great. (laughs) Now, we always are asking what consciousness is and like, yeah. what is it if it's if it's just a series of electronic impulses and all of that kind of stuff. But this neuroscientist Bohr was talking about autism. Like the classic assumption was that most severely autistic children are like mentally disabled. Right. And then if you and that they have low IQs and that's just partly because they weren't tested properly. Right. It's because, hard to communicate with somebody. Yeah. You don't know what they're if actually they're, thinking. If their brains work differently, right? So like if you test them on nonverbal IQ, then they're normal or slightly better than average, right? On other tests, you know, perceptual tasks, they perform better than average. So a lot of people are suggesting now that they just have a different kind of brain that has advantages, as a matter of fact. So mm. like with Asperger's, whether they're diagnosed or not, it seems almost as if they have extra consciousness. So they're better able to process information than normal. Like it's a, what we're seeing as, potentially classifying it as a disease is actually a good evolutionary mo- yeah like, like they, they have an advantage in certain ways autism and asperger's they we typically refer to as being like a you know a social disorder right and mm. like they're very antisocial and whatnot but there's been like increasingly successful treatments that centers on socializing that's like mm. turn kids that are super withdrawn into very affectionate socially aware people well, also and aren't a lot of like people who have changed the world over time considered yeah. to be maybe Sci- a little so bit so many scientists mm-hmm. are autistic or at least mm-hmm. are on the spectrum right 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 like what they obsess over maybe like they're searching for patterns and structure in the world it's you know it's like calendars and mathematical patterns and stuff like that so all of this research means a lot about what consciousness is actually for in a in a you know evolutionary way wow now Bohr thinks that the purpose of consciousness is to draw all the relevant information together into a larger space and it's almost like we can't necessarily spot it because we're doing it all the time in the same way that we love crossword puzzles and like we love sudoku that's like the a huge bit of what the cortex is primed to do is to spot these patterns so once we spot them we assimilate them into our pyramid of knowledge and build more layers of strategy so then we get these like streams of pleasure when we find something that can help us understand some deep pattern so again i don't have fun when i play sudoku but it fucking feels good when i put in that last number you know it's why scientists love research it's why you and i love research it's why yeah it's hard to define fun yeah like it is fun when you have a discovery right and so like it's not fun in the way that like it's not a yahoo i'm a coaster but (laughs) right but you're like i feel powerful knowledge is power (laughs) yeah it's satisfying i guess is a better word for it than fun right well but then also you and i sitting here right now we're looking at our fucking computers talking into these mics it's like knowing how to find these patterns yeah is is how we've become so successful at controlling yeah, like the world understanding how audio works like the sound yeah. waves traveling through the air that allows you to then be like oh well if that pattern's true then it's true that we can pick that up with a microphone and right like, yeah I, isn't that crazy <sighs> human and it's beings, like man human beings am i right <laughs> although fucking pigs do puzzles man pigs haven't you seen puzzles? the video with a pig doing a puzzle i haven't seen this what ah, i just can't eat bacon anymore oh, oh yeah there's a pig solving a fucking dissection puzzle i think i did hear about this is that like he's like putting uh, a, a dissection puzzle together yeah so dissection puzzle just to be clear is one of those like put the pieces in the holes yeah it's like there's like a bigger picture that's been dissected mm. and you have to 
put it back together right, right, again. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Not like Operation. No, no, guys. <laughs> That's a different puzzle. Now, how does the fidget spinner fit into this? That's just us being ADD and like neurotic as fuck. I think that's just like, it's fun to press buttons and spin things. And like, it just feels good to right. like, you know, sometimes like while we're recording, like I'll notice like my leg is tapping on the right. ground and it's like, there's a nervous tick. Right. I don't know what it is. Human beings just smart and neurotic as fuck. We like to fidget <laughs> and we like to spin. <laughs> so... There are cannibals in this movie. Oh god. They yeah. like shoot down Judge Dredd's plane and then they they like they're going to eat him and Schneider. Yeah. And I was reading about this book by a vertebrate zoologist at the Museum of Natural History called Cannibalism: colon, A Perfectly Natural History. Oh my. So this guy Bill Shoot or Shut I don't know. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Oh, shoot. He describes cannibalism as much more natural in the animal kingdom and in human history than we might think. Oh, God. He wanted to approach the idea from a zoologist's perspective rather than an emotional one, because most time anybody's talking about cannibalism, they're like, oh, God, no, no, it's a terrible thing. Right, of course. First of all, he talks about how upper class people, even members of the British royalty, applied, drank, or wore concoctions prepared from human body parts. (sighs) And they did this as late as the 18th century. And people thought that blood could cure epilepsy or human fat could cure skin diseases. Well, remember my mummy powder shit. Exactly. Ugh. The mummy is. So there's a lot of cannibalism that's happened in human history. There's lots of cannibalism in insects, fish, toads, and salamanders. Right. And I guess like the cobfish lays a million eggs. And they're not really looking at their eggs like they're babies. Right. But like a handful of raisins is how they... just a little snack. Yeah. So they'll eat a few of the eggs, but not like the whole million of them. Right. And he says this is really uncommon in mammals because you're dealing with fewer offspring and more parental care. Right. So cannibalism happens because of environmental stress in in mammals. Interesting. He's basically saying that like cannibalism is a natural behavior... And when scientists looked at starvation, at a certain point, cannibalism becomes a part of what humans will do. Totally. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like if you put any animal in a dire enough situation, the odds are they'll end up eating their own kind. Right. And this is actually what happened to the Donner Party, right. which is a group of people who went west in, on wagons in the 1800s. They got stranded over a winter. And I'll go into detail about them some other time because what they went through is really fucked up. Fucking crazy. Like, the, like some of them did survive, but they did like... The stories of like, we need our kids to eat. And so they started by feeding people to their children so that the kids could survive. Eat. Right. Like, it was like, our kids are about to die. It's pretty fucked up. Right. Because at one at certain point, you're going to be like, no, I doth proclaim I will never eat another person. It but took then them when long, you're starving. But then you when you're literally starving. Yeah. Yeah. That, and so it was kind of this concept of like, cannibalism is more natural than we would like to think. Totally. I'm also curious in terms of like mammals versus like insects or the smaller invertebrates, mm-hmm. right? When human mothers have such an outrageous just connection to their young right it's a lot harder to cannibalize well, that if that one happens at a time right how do you think they, you, a mom would feel if you had a million yeah. babies at once let's ask the octomom would you ever cannibalize <laughs> these guys would you eat your baby <laughs> just <No>. one <laughs> interesting okay yeah so cannibalism it's real it's real <laughs> i was also looking into like the earliest forms of justice okay and i read about the code of hammurabi and it's the, one of the earliest examples of rules of law. And it dates back to around 1754 BCE. It wasn't discovered until 1901. Whoa. Which Whoa. a lot more recent than I thought. Holy smokes. The code is mostly written on a seven and a half foot tall stone slab, okay. which is like this gorgeous work. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to describe it, but we'll put a picture. And it consists of 282 laws. Mostly the laws are related to stuff like contracts. Like if somebody doesn't pay a builder who constructs a house or something like that, it's about liability, inheritance issues, stuff wow. like that. Like that's what that's the code of Hammurabi is about. nuanced, right? Yeah. Well, because I think it was It's not like, quite like thou shalt not kill, you no, know? No, it's like the issues of the day. It's yeah. like, it's like, well, if you bought a house from this guy and then the house collapsed, he's liable for that. Totally. It's most famous for being the origin of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this was like the first example of scaled punishments according to the crime. Uh-huh. 
Like, rather than, like, you stole a loaf of bread? Death! But it does remind me of my favorite Gandhi quote, which is about an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Totally. And I think, like, that, when I was in high school and I heard that, I was like, whoa! Well, it's like this idea of vengeance. Yeah, right? it's, the, it's the concept of, like, no, that's not how we should, we should be treating things with love. Right, like, exactly. Like, justice had to start somewhere, I guess, and... <sighs> We're not like killing Still it now. Got a pretty long way to go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right, exactly. so this, there's me snapping again. Just yeah. a little. Crude. 1754 to the year 2017. <laughs> How much has changed? <laughs> yes. So obviously this movie is a police state, right? And so I was just kind of. I mean, I feel like I know what a police state is, but I was like, well, what are some famous police states? Now, of course, since the beginning of the 20th century, that term has taken on quite a derogatory meaning. You're so. Right. <laughs> You might specifically think of like the Germans, you know, yeah, the, rise the SS, of, yeah, the, the KGB, SS, the yeah. modern day American police. No, yeah, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> totally. I mean, oh God, I know. So uh, of course, there's no like objective standards what defines a police state because like you know there are different political perspectives in terms of what's an appropriate balance, the scales that you're talking about between like individual freedom and then national security. Mm-hmm. Along the spectrum, any law that you know removes liberty of any kind that's that's supposed to be for the greater good or whatever that's could be looked at as being a police state yeah whereas if you eradicate those laws then that could be a free state and people are like anarchy blah. so it's like this okay. delicate balance that no one's really agreed upon but well, that's why i feel like a lot of the bill of rights were trying to kind of stop to flush that out yeah, right stop and, the potential for a police state. and there's a reason why there's fucking amendments later on uh, down mm-hmm. the line I am not like a constitutional scholar. I'm not trying to be, but just to like familiarize ourselves. Yeah, like you said, the Soviet Union. At that time, there's roughly one informer agent for every 6.5 citizens. I don't know that point That's... five, but there you go. But so they're that fucking everywhere, me of, like, right? The teacher-student ratio. It's Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> Right. Which was a selling point. <laughs> yeah, but so, so you know there's a lot of cops is what you're saying. Yeah, and they're fucking everywhere and they're they're monitoring your shit. There's, you know, mm. people are just like sent to Siberia and you know right. and, and even today there's like an outrageous number of police killings that journalists are going missing, all of these kinds of things. It's so certainly like, a hot button uh, issue. Yeah, totally. Reporters Without Borders has ranked North Korea last or second last in their test of press freedom since the press freedom index's beginnings. Meaning mm-hmm. just that like the Kim family controls all of the media. So it's like a propaganda state. Right. That's like a thing that measures how free a nation's press is. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And it's good to know because, I mean, the media is a huge part of democracy. And I didn't realize how important it was until... Democracy dies in darkness. Yeah. And like living in America now where I'm like, oh my, I've never been in fear of losing this or whatever. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of corrupt police states in the world, but surprise, surprise, guess who's the worst? Uh America. This was a real bummer. And I'm, I, I don't want to bum anybody out, but these numbers really fucked with me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Well, sometimes you've used the phrase a good kind of bummer. Yeah. It's a good kind of bummer because everybody needs to know this spotlight Mm -hmm. is the best disinfectant, but let's, let's, let's take a minute. Let's be bummed. It's going to be all right. (laughs) We're going to make it through and then we're going to be happy. And then I'll finger gun my way out of it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now we especially became really crazy after 9-11, right? And this is this delicate balance that we have not been delicate with in terms of, you know, what's best for the state versus what's best for individual freedom. Now, our media might tell us that somewhere like China is a police state, right? But mm-hmm. China is a billion people bigger than the United States. They have four times the United States population. But the United States imprisons 600,000 more people than China does. On pure numbers? Yeah. Fuck me. According to, to the United Nations, China is actually 87th in the world in proportion of its people who are imprisoned. They must not have private prisons. No, they don't. That, no. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I feel like that is a fucking... That's crazy phenomenon. Root. This is r- really gross. Non-whites make up about 70% of United States prisons. That means that the number of non-white prisoners in the United States is roughly the same as all of China's incarcerated persons. 25% of prison inmates in the world are locked up in the United States. African Americans comprise one out of every eight of the planet's prisoners. Of the planet's prisoners. And that's because of us. And that's because of the United fucking States. So I knew that these numbers were outrageous, especially with like, yeah, the shining light on the for-profit prison system and mm-hmm. just this like crazy industrial complex that we have. Like that's outrageous, no? Those Gross. are very disgusting numbers. Well, and I'd never heard it in with regard to other 
nations, especially the the race issue. Like mm. I knew that that people of color were disproportionately locked up. But when you put it on those on that scale, it's like this is unreal. Like this is yeah. a machine. What's even more fucked up though too is also like we do the solitary confinement shit. Eighty thousand people undergo solitary confinement on any day. That's like as many people as the entire prison system of Germany or of England, Scotland, and Wales combined. Just solitary. Jesus, I just read a thing about like a prisoner who I can't remember exactly who, but he was a famously terrible guy and they chose to give him 70 years without parole in mm. in special housing unit instead of death penalty. Right. And he was interviewed fairly recently and said that he's tried to think of slow ways to die that would be worse than spending 30 years in solitary confinement and he couldn't think of one. It, it's he would rather a truly gruesome death that was given by us. I mean, the notion of life without the possibility of parole is so abhorrent to me. But, but then, then add in yeah. also you can't ever talk to anybody. Right. Like the United Nations reports that solitary confinement beyond 15 days at a stretch crosses the line of torture. Yet it's typical for hundreds of thousands of U.S. prisoners to spend 30 to 60 days in solitary to stretch. Then there's 20,000 or more that are held in perpetual isolation in so-called supermax prisons. So... Yeah, this is one of those things where I like I can't believe that we've let it get this far yeah. and it really honestly it gets me very emotional being yeah. somebody who like believes in this country or believes at least in what like this country is supposed to be about yeah, yeah. but like this fucking monster has happened. Boy, I am bummed. All right, let's get out of this hole. <laughs> let's talk about some guns. Yeah, that <laughs> raises the spirits. Oh my god, I've just realized I'm going into an, a section that involves like unintentional kid deaths from oh, guns so God. get ready to be less bummed well we're working on it yeah we're working on it <laughs> so i've talked before about this thing called the armatix ip1 gun it's kind of like the one in the movie in the sense that it requires you to be authenticated before it'll fire it's like right, connected right, right, right. to a watch that you wear that you've authenticated Smart and like, gun. yeah and so it won't fire if like you're not wearing the Thing. Watch. Yeah. I read about this other one that is similar called the Sentinel Identilock, which was made by a guy who was actually the victim of an unsecured firearm shot to his face as a child. Fuck. And he has this thing where it attaches to a gun. It's not like built into the gun itself, but it attaches to the trigger of a gun and then it won't fire the gun uh -huh. until your fingerprint has gotcha. unlocked it. And the NRA, unsurprisingly, opposes anything that might stop someone from being able to fire their gun. Yeah. The way they present their argument is that their concern is that the tech is expensive and may not work. Those fucks. Yeah, I, fuck them. Because I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that it's more important that kids don't accidentally shoot themselves in the face than someone's gun jamping up on them once in a while because the fingerprint sensor didn't it's work. It's also like, that's a fucking completely disingenuous argument it to totally suggest is. that because it's expensive that you're going to oppose it outright. Guess what else is expensive? This phone, you know, $400 for a fucking phone. Like, come on. Yeah, well... I'm about to pay a thousand dollars. I can't. I can't even. I can't even do it. No. They announced the new one. I'm getting <laughs> it. But yeah. So there's like contexts where that would be a real tragedy. That like if somebody's fingerprint sensor didn't work and mm -hmm. then they were like unable to defend themselves. But I say let's try it. And if kids keep getting shot and more people keep dying because their guns are jammed up, let's go back to the old way. Right. But let's give it a shot and see what happens. Right. Of course. Like the idea of not even giving something a shot is. We keep saying giving something a shot, I but I I don't want to. We give don't want to give it a shot. We don't want it to shoot at all. He has a malfunctioning hover bike in this movie. Yeah, apparently the hover car in the movie is based on a Lamborghini Countach. Oh, like, uh, sure. Fancy. Yeah, I think I know what a Lamborghini basically yeah, looks like. Yeah, sure. Countach, yeah, whatever. But I looked into the state of bikes that can hover and. Just this year, a bunch of hover bikes came on the market. What? Yeah. Now, to really simplify what it is, it's like one of those quadcopter drones that you can attach a camera to. Like, you know, those little mm -hmm. things that for your phone or something. Yeah. But it's big enough for someone to ride. Fuck, that's awesome. It looks so dangerous. Oh, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Because <laughs> sure. it's like all these like quadcopters going right next to your legs. Ugh. But it's a bike and it can hover and you can go like 20 feet into the air and stuff. I don't know. They, they want to use it for all sorts of stuff like cargo drop off because it's also an autonomous drone. But then people can ride it around for fun. And I think they want to market it as like a new type of extreme sports. 
Right, right, right. Is right. that you I would have like that. hover bikes yeah. and like, you know, I don't know what kind of crazy physics would wind up happening with that, but. <laughs> They're real. Did you have any favorite lines? There were a couple of things. I mean, other than Gordon's Gordon's judge, judge. but Judge this. <laughs> yeah. I liked it every time that was said. Uh, it's judgment day. Was I that know, said? I sure hope it was. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think it was. It's said in the trailer. <laughs> right. Okay. <Yeah. laughs> but I have a silly line that I loved and a real line that I loved. Okay. Or, I don't know. They're both silly. Yeah, come on. But one was Armand DeSanti in the finale is like, he needs the clones to come in and he says, send in the, the clones. clones. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Send in, in the, the clones. clones. <laughs> All right. So I had I, to mention yeah, okay. that. <laughs> I forgot about that. I was like, send in the clones. Come on, Armand. <laughs> what a clone. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing was like, Somebody asks him at one point, what is the meaning of life? And he goes, it ends. Which is like, it sounds like it's meaningful, but it's right. not. But that's after every other like dramatic pregnant pause oh, followed yeah. by some dumbass <laughs> line while you're looking at his like crazily lit baby blues. There's like a streak of light over his eyes and every There was an actual, up. like you could tell that they like put a specific light that they had to like block out all yeah. of the rest of the like, di- diffusion of you it. You know when the screenplay would be like, one moment on his piercing blue eyes. And then Judge Dredd says... Ah, God, this movie was fucking silly. Did you have any lines? No. I mean, you know, just in terms of what these judges were, the street judges, the police, jury, and executioner all in one. And just like to embody any entity with that kind of power is a problem. Yeah. Well, he also says the law can't apologize. And it's like the law often apologizes. But then he also says, I am the law. And we're like, so you can't apologize? (laughs) Oh, this is a personal thing. Are you not human? If we cut you, do you not bleed? Anyway, I learned a lot this week. And fuck. Fuck. (laughs) I don't really have much more. I was like, yeah, I guess I can look into puzzles. I didn't know I was going to like end up on like what consciousness is and like police states and shit. Great. (laughs) So thanks, guys. Yeah. Next week, we are doing Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yeah. Which should be a very interesting episode. So listen to that. In the meantime, you can find us at oh that's a thing.com and oh that's a thing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Amia on Twitter and Insta. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you guys have a wonderful week. See you guys soon, goons. Bye. Bye. Bye.